Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. All right, I, as I shared before, super excited to, uh, to jump into this, and I think it's just going to continue to, to uh, if you will, piggyback on what the Lord's already been starting in worship and just encountering a fresh baptism of love, if you will. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 is going to be our, our primary text. Um, before we do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a scripture with you guys. You don't need to turn there in, in Ephesians chapter 3. But go ahead, turn the Songs of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. That'll be our primary text. For those of you that are listening in for the first time, those of you here with us the last two weeks, uh, I just want to reiterate that we are working through a teaching series entitled Bridal Generation. And this emerged from personal study of seeing this, um, this overwhelming reality in the scriptures that as we draw near to uh, Jesus's uh, coming, his second coming, that the scriptures point to the fact that he'll be coming primarily in the, in the realm of a bridegroom and the church will then be primarily operating as a bride. And I encourage you that if uh, even hearing that, you're like, what does all that mean? We've spent the last two weeks really unpacking some of the foundations and, and confronting some of the misconceptions we have, especially as men when we hear that the church is a bride. But this is one of the dominant themes seen throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Jesus literally says on, on multiple occasions that the, the, the culmination of all things, the, the consummation of, of the kingdom of heaven coming on earth is going to be pictured as a wedding feast. And he's going to be the bridegroom and the church is going to be the bride. And so I, I'm sharing this because as I was studying the scriptures of Jesus speaking of the signs of, the, of his coming, we're seeing a lot of these things in the world right now. I mean, turn on the news. It, it's really, it's wild what's taking place. And, and what God's been putting on my heart is one of the signs in the midst of these shakings is that the church is going to start really walking in bridal identity because this means he's coming back as bridegroom. So I want us to be a people that really understand what does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? Many generations since Christ has come has known him as king, but there's going to be one generation that really begins to emerge that knows him as bridegroom king. And I'm not saying that we're going to see the full, fullness of it. I'm not saying we're on the back end. We may be just on the front of this. I'm not sure. But I know I feel God starting to stir in my heart that we really need to understand what it means to be his bride. And I want us to be entrenched in bridal, beloved identity. And there's a scripture before we get into our main text I just wanted to read to you guys that I feel really sets the stage and the course for us in Ephesians 3. And uh, again, it's on the screen. You can just, you can look at it there so you can hold your spot in, in, uh, in Songs of Solomon. But it says this, verse 17, Paul says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So he's saying that you would be established and entrenched in love may have strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints, with all the church, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, I think Dina actually said this as she was praying, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, so this really sets the stage, I think, for why we're doing what we're doing. Paul says, guys, I want you to, to begin to comprehend, to begin to understand this love of God, the height, depth, breadth, width, all this. I want you to be able to grasp this. And he, and he actually says it's beyond human knowledge. 
You need the Holy Spirit to help you. I mean, we can start studying this now, a million years from now, we will still be just diving into the inexhaustible, immeasurable, incalculable love of Christ. And Paul is just saying that I want you guys, though, to begin now by the Spirit, to begin to comprehend little by little his love for you. Because when this happens, the scriptures reveal overwhelming fruit or impact that happens in your life when you start to be rooted in the perfect love of Christ. It produces radical obedience, right? We love because he first loved us. And so as we encounter his love, we love him and we, we obey because we love him. So obedience takes place. Purity sets in our hearts. We are faithful to our husband, if you will, to Christ. We see boldness, fear, and all these things are displaced from our heart when we know that we're confident in his perfect love. We have authority that rises up. Faith takes place. These, I believe, are going to be defining marks of this bridal generation. Contrary to what so many think when they hear the church operating as a bride, it will not be weak. It will not be powerless. They will be pure, holy, set on fire with zeal, sold out for the Lord. They're going to be a ready bride as the bridegroom is coming back. And so we're engaging in this, this, uh, this teaching series that, we may look at other portions of scripture, but primarily Song of Solomon, so that we can do what Paul just said, be rooted and grounded in the love of the Lord. And I pray today, especially what we're going to talk about, is the ravished heart of God. This is actually scriptural language, if you believe it or not. It says that his heart is ravished when he sees you. And so we're, what I hope today happens is when you see who you are to God, it changes you forever. It, 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 it wrecks you in the best of ways. When you see his passion for you, when you see his desire for you, when you see his delight over you, when you see his enjoyment over you, something changes in your life. And what I want to do is I want to weaponize this book, if you will. I want to weaponize the love of God to dispel the lies of the enemy, to crush misconceptions of God that often have us running from him rather than to him and teach us how he really sees us, that we would grow in grace, that even in our setbacks, we would not draw back from God because we understand rightly how he sees us according to the finished work of Christ. Many ask me, Pastor, how do I get passion for Jesus? Here's how you get passion for Jesus. Become a student of his passion for you. Begin to see how he sees you. This awakens you. This energizes you. When you start to get discouraged and unmotivated because you start saying, what's the point? I can't measure up. I'll never make it. You need to see his passion for you because when you do, this, this gives you like this, this boost to say, I can keep going with him. And so what we're going to talk about today, like I shared last week, this has to be something more uh, than, than something you agree with. It starts there, but it's got to get into your soul. It's got to permeate your being. We can all say, God loves me. God's beautiful. Yes, he, all these things, but you've got to keep it before you. I need to hear this. I have to stay with it. You've got to stay consistent. It's got to get in your language. It can't be something on the outside of you. It's got to get in you so that it's something you start walking in. So these truths and the things we're going to share, if when you hear it, you're like, man, that's for the person next to me. I, I don't see God seeing me this way. You've got to get before him. You've got to meditate on this. And this, this stuff will start to get in you, and it will change your walk forever. This, this is a journey I've been on. But even in these last few weeks, I feel my heart just being more and more free to, to just grow, grow in a healthy way because I'm understanding now how he sees me more than ever. So Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7 to 10 is going to be our primary text here. 
and I want to just share two things real quick so you, so you guys know, especially those listening for the first time, um, how we're approaching this. We are going through this book thematically. We're not going necessarily verse by verse, but what I'm doing is as I'm studying the breadth of this text and this book, I'm just looking for certain themes that are really important. Um, there will be some overlap each, each week, but I'm trying to find different things that I feel like are dominant themes through this book. Uh, also remember that when, when you read this book, there's natural interpretation, which means that this is an actual story of a husband and a soon-to-be wife. It's, it's a bride and a bridegroom. It's Solomon and a Shulamite bride. So you can use this text to teach people on natural marriage, and that's important. You can use it. But we know that every book in the Bible speaks to Jesus Christ. And so the spiritual interpretation or application of this book is that ultimately Christ is the true bridegroom and the church is the true bride. And that's the way that we are pressing into this. All right, so we're going to pick up in verse 7. And here, here's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Man, this, this is just, you got to really let this get into your heart. This is so good of how, what the Lord is, is going to speak over us, I think, this morning. This entire chapter, chapter 4, is predominantly about Solomon describing the beauty of his bride. In other words, it's Jesus describing the beauty of the church or the, the believer, you and me. We see this throughout this story, but here's one. I just want to stop here and highlight a few verses here. And we're not going to go through the first six verses, but again, I encourage you. I hope this provokes your heart to go deeper. The first six verses of chapter 4 starts with Solomon listing these eight physical virtues of his bride. There are things that he finds beautiful about her. In other words, Jesus begins by listing eight physical virtues of how he sees you and the beauty that he sees, he sees in you. And you can, listen, use scripture to interpret scripture. Some of these things are uh, pretty uh, straightforward. You can see what they mean just by reading it. If you go to other places in scripture, it'll help you. Or you may need to have a secondary resource to really understand the context because some of the imagery is, is, is very specific to, the, to that time. But I, but I encourage you to dig in and find it because these will be realities about how Jesus sees you, right? But here's the summary. This is where I want to get to is verse 7 becomes this summary statement. It's like this capstone declaration that Jesus speaks over you, his bride and his church. Again, this, this book is about a, a church, a, 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 it's a message of maturity. This isn't to unbelievers. This is to someone who's in Christ, and he's available to every person this morning. But he says this, to sum it all up after the first six verses, he says, you are all fair, my love. You are all beautiful, my love. And there is no spot in you. I like how it says in the ESV, it says, you are all together lovely. There's no spot in you. There's no blemish in you. There's no flaw. Now, if I look at my life, I have many spots and blemishes and flaws. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, when he engages with you, when he relates to you, he's relating on the basis of grace. He, he's relating on the basis of his perfect finished work, which means when, he says, when I see you, I am seeing you according to my blood that has washed you. I'm not seeing you according to what you can or cannot do. I see you according to my perfect work. And my blood speaks a better word than all of your failures. And so he engages with us on the basis of grace and says, there is no spot, there is no flaw in you. But that first part of that verse just so gripped my heart. You are all together lovely. <laughs> 
altogether means totally, completely taking everything into consideration. Lovely means exquisitely beautiful. It actually incites affection. So when you see something that's lovely, you say, I, I want that. Jesus says, when I look at the church and I look at the bride, I see everything. I take all things into consideration about your life. And when I see all of it and I see my finished work, my heart is stirred. I have a passion and a desire for you. I find you lovely. See, people will come up to me and say, man, I really appreciate that you're my pastor. I really love you as my pastor. And I say, thank you. And deep down I'm saying, but man, if they live with me 24-7, they would not say that. If they just knew everything about me, that love actually, they wouldn't say those things. That, that, and so the problem is that, that that love doesn't penetrate that deep, right? We need that. It does help. But there's still a part that says, but they don't know everything. Jesus says, I take all things into consideration about your life. I know everything, even better than you know yourself. And here's, here's my final description and declaration over you. You are all together lovely. This is so important. The beauty that we have that he sees, where does this come from? It's primarily his beauty. He imparts his beauty to us. In fact, if you go through this book, one of the things that you'll find is that often the descriptions of, of the bridegroom's beauty are the same things said over the bride. So what happens is this is the, the principle of the abiding and the beholding. As we grow in intimacy with the Lord, what's happening is his beauty is being imparted to us. In Isaiah 61, this is a scripture that really has become a, a vision statement, I feel like, for our church. Um, it's the, the scripture that Jesus quoted in Luke 4.18 in the synagogue where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news, right? To set the captives free, to bind the brokenhearted, uh, to liberate the oppressed, right? And then he says it's the year of the Lord's favor. Well, in, in Isaiah 61, Jesus, it, that's where we first see the scripture. And Isaiah 61 is, is a prophetic message over Jesus, but it gives us more to what he does. And one of the things, it just leapt off the pages this week, and it's so beautiful for what we're talking about today, is he says one of his primary purposes for coming is that he gives beauty for ashes. One of his primary mandates under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, not only does he heal, not only does he deliver, not only does he save, these are things that we emphasize and rightfully so, but one of his primary uh, um, uh, commissions by the Holy Spirit is to bring beauty for ashes. It means all of the brokenness in our life, the ashes of our life. Jesus says, I have come to impart my beauty into you so that when I look at you, my language over you will be, you are all together lovely. <laughs> Do you understand that what this means is that despite what goes on in our head and despite what the enemy says, when he looks at you, he's not put off. When he looks at you, he's not grieved. Oh, how I often think that when God relates to me, he's grieved that he has to relate to me. It's like, man, do I really have to engage with you? You just frustrate me. No, no, no. When he looks at you, he's not put off. When he looks at you, he's not hesitant. He's not saying, do I really have to engage with this person again? When he looks at you, he's not disgusted. When he looks at you, he's not disappointed. When he looks at you, he says, you are all together lovely. I know you're still growing. I know you're still maturing. I know there's still weakness in your life, but those budding virtues, I see the full picture already. I see what my work is going to do. I see the perfection and the glorification that's coming when I return, and I'm declaring already what I see. I'm calling out in you prophetically what I see. You're all together lovely. Start living under this realm. 
not all the other stuff that we often think. He enjoys you. <laughs> it means what he says is, I enjoy what I see. I find value in what I see. Man, this starts changing my mind. He actually likes being with you. He, he's not, again, it's not a nuisance to spend time with you. God says, as we're going to see, he says, you actually ravish my heart. I love your devotion and your affection to me. And this isn't minimizing sin. This isn't inviting a lifestyle of immorality. This is learning to actually operate in the finished work of Christ. This is learning to be rooted in his righteousness and, and to, to engage them on the basis of his finished work. He doesn't just see you as forgiven. That's beautiful. But he also sees you as his beloved. He actually says, I don't just see you in a neutral state now of forgiven. I see, I delight in what I see over your life. You are all together lovely. There's something that connects, I think, so well with this. Verse 9 is the ravished heart. We're going to get there. We actually may use that just towards the end. This all builds and connects to it, so just, just stay with me. But this, I really just felt the Lord on this. Um, last week, we shared the first four verses of this, this book. And the last verse, verse 4, the bride or the church says to Jesus, the bridegroom says, draw me away, let us run. Remember that? And then, and then she says, uh, the king has brought me into his chamber. This is a place of intimacy, the secret place. This is how it, the introduction into the book is this place of union and fellowship and communion. But in verse 5, it says something so interesting. The very next verse, after she comes into the chamber, she says, I am very dark but lovely. It's the, see, this is the revelation of the in, in, inward chamber. This is what you find when you come away with him. It's the paradox of grace. You come before him and you realize that in and of yourself, apart from Christ, you say, wow. I am very dark. Before his holy, perfect, majestic presence, I see all of the junk that's going on here. But at the same time, I hear him speaking over me because of his blood and what he's done. He says, but you are very lovely. She doesn't say I became dark. She says, I am dark. Meaning, it's not that this just happened. It's that when I came before him, I came into a recognition of who I really am. But at the same time, I now am seeing myself as his do you know what this does? This brings you into a confidence in his perfect love. It detaches you from finding confidence in anything else in relating to him. When you see yourself as very dark but lovely, meaning he, see, his love is not in an ignorance of your darkness. He sees that, yet he still pays the price and now says, I see all that, but this is the final statement. And when this happens, it destroys pride because it says I'm very dark, but it also destroys fear, saying, well, he'll never want me. No, no, no. It destroys both of those realms, and you start relating and engaging with God on the basis of grace and the gospel now. Your heart is free, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what stumbling blocks take place, he saved you when you didn't have a devotion life. I, devotion is huge. We should be growing that. But he didn't come because you had a good devotion life. In fact, we were enemies of him when he came. He didn't come because you had a solid prayer life. He came when you were lost and had no thought of him. The more you grasp this, this is what helps you that as you are growing and maturing, you can run to him knowing that you're his because of you being in Christ. Our spirit opens to God. When we, when we find ourselves confident in him, we run to him. We are, are confident in what he has done. Uh, we become fearless in our obedience to him. We do not feel shame. We do not feel pushed back by God. We are not afraid of being rejected or cast out. Something dynamic has happened in our heart because now we come before him confident in his perfect love. There's something else I want to share in this, on this text. And I, at this, I felt 
the Lord so strongly on it in, in, in this week's preparation. And again, it's in this context of you're altogether lovely. And I, I'm just praying, for those of you listening home, like, just hear this. I want to break lies and misconceptions that just rob people of growing in the Lord. It's, it has messed me up often in my life. And what I'm going to share, I think can, people, a lot of people can relate to. The Song of Songs, as I'm reading it and studying now for the last three weeks, it is a progression of this uh, relationship that we have with the Lord. That's the picture. If you actually read it from chapter 1 to chapter 8, chapter 8 ends with this, with this complete union of the bridegroom and bride. Many people believe, and I, I believe too, it's a picture of Jesus' second coming where there's a full reunion now of us and him, which means the whole story is actually this progression of her learning to grow in her intimacy and love for the Lord, right? That's why we're going to talk about this next week. There's different things that get in the way, like the little foxes that spoil a vineyard. You see this growth process where she's learning to see the stuff that gets in the way of her devotion to the Lord. That's the church. But here's what's so amazing is that this, what I just read, you are altogether lovely. We're about to look at that. We ravish his heart. I would think in the natural, where would God say that? That would be reserved for chapter 8. <laughs> that would be reserved for when we have it all together and we are perfected and glorified. That would be reserved for a future time when we've had complete and total victory in every aspect of our life. Until then, as I'm still experiencing setback, as I'm still growing, as I'm still developing, as I'm still sinning, as there's still stuff in my life, I would think that God says, up until then, I'm just disappointed, discouraged in what I see. But this says that in the midst of our growth, in the midst of our development, in the midst of us just learning our own weaknesses, that he's speaking this over us in that process. He's not reserving that for some future date. He's saying, right now, you are all together lovely. Right now, I see you as one that ravishes my heart. Not just when you have perfect uh, and complete victory over this area in your life. I see your heart that wants to. And I'm, man, he's delighting over you. Even not the sin or the brokenness, but he's delighting in his relationship with you. And the more we get this, the more we can grow with him in this process of, of, of maturing. And I think this is so critical because if you're anything like me, I often feel like I'm just disappointing them along the way. And this is what makes me want to quit. This is what makes me want to just give up and return to a carnal lifestyle is when I say, what's the point anyway? I can't live up to what he wants. He's always frustrated with me. He's always put off by what he sees. And he's just not going to finally smile over me until I get this whole thing right. And, but he's engaging with us on the basis of grace. He's seeing us from the finished product. And the more we get this, the more that this changes us. We have to. Because you take this mindset of how we see God, and then you couple it with the fact that the accuser day and night accuses, man, you could get so jacked up in your walk with God and just say, that's it. I, I, what's the point of trying to have a wholehearted devotion? Every time I set my heart with true intentions and say, God, I really want you, I find myself still stumbling along the way and he, you know, he must just not want me. He's, he's far off. Now, I'm going to get into that in a moment, but I want to encourage you with a few things here. Number one, John 15, 9. Like, if, they, if you struggle with that, John 15, 9 is one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture, I think. It, it's a crazy statement. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, with the same love that the Father has loved me, I love you. Now, just try to process that. He's saying with the same perfect pure, that same intensity, that same consistency. I've always been operating under that love. He says, that's the love I have for you guys. 
Okay, we have to really think about this and say, if, if that's not connecting with you, then we've got to get before him and say, God, I need to receive that reality. But here's where it gets even better. He says this to his disciples. Do you know that only a few hours later, he's going to get before his disciples and he's going to say this, guys, every single one of you is going to deny me tonight. Every single one of you is going to deny me. In other words, his love for you is not based on some illusion of your maturity. He's not saying, oh my goodness, if I knew that you were going to do that, I would have withheld my love. He says, I love you with the love of the Father. It's perfect, it's pure, it's consistent, it's intense, and I see your weakness coming. But I'm not going to draw back from you. I'm not going to change the way I see you. I know what's coming ahead of you, but I'm going to continue to be with you through this, to love you through this. In fact, you're going to need to know that love so that you can grow through that weakness. Peter, you know what Jesus said about Peter? Someone needs to hear this. Peter, he said, Peter, you're a rock. He said, Peter, I see seeds of stability and strength in you. You say, wow, it's incredible. You know what also he knew? He knew that Peter would deny him before a servant girl. Peter couldn't even stay faithful to, to someone that he should have been able to be strong. He denied before a servant girl. Peter, when he was an anointed apostle, fell into hypocrisy, started denying eating with Gentiles. Paul had to rebuke him. Jesus saw all of those things and said, I still see seeds of a rock in you, Peter. I see seeds of strength in you. You're someone I'm going to build on. I see all the other stuff. But listen, Peter, just stay with me. You're altogether lovely. Like I'm cherishing you each step of the way that you come forth. Every time you stumble, but you get up and say, God, I'm, I still want to run with you. He says, I see it. Romans, I believe it's 417. He says, he calls those things out which do not exist as if they did. Which means he sees the virtues in your life. You can't see him. He says, I see the seeds of the rock. Gideon, I see the seeds of courage. I know you're hiding, but I see something different. And we don't, we don't see that. It's like you plant in the ground. We can't see the full plant, right? But God sees the full plant. We don't see anything. He's saying, I'm seeing those seeds. I'm calling them out prophetically over your life now. Just walk with me. You've got to see how I see you. He sees us to the finished work of Christ. The full beauty of Christ, he sees it already imparted, even though we are growing in it. Ephesians 5.29, this gets even better, I think. Ephesians 5.29 is this beautiful text of Christ, or I should say Paul, talking about marriage between a husband and a wife. Literal, actual marriage. And he's sharing the different roles that we have, the love and the respect and the mutual submission. But while, as he's doing that, Paul is also making a, a beautiful connection to how this points to us and Jesus, right? A lot of people know this text. And he's really saying, everything you see in natural marriage, he says, guys, I want you to know this points to this mystery that we have, this union with Christ. And he gets to the husbands and he's talking about him. He says, guys, he says, you have become one with your wife. The two have become one flesh. And then he says this in verse 29. He says, no one ever hated his own flesh. So he says, guys, do you hate your own flesh? No, therefore you cannot hate your wife, right? That's so important. He says, you don't hate your wife. See, many people think God hates them, right? He says, no one's ever hated their own flesh, but listen, it says, but they nourish and cherish it. Meaning, a husband is called to nourish and cherish his wife. And then it says, just as Christ does so to the church, he cherishes you. Many people do not operate under the paradigm that Christ cherishes them. Most of the time we think that when we look up, we're going to be faced with the biggest trouble of our life. He cherishes us. You know what it means to cherish? Cherish is to protect and care for lovingly, to hold dear. This is, this, is a, this is the way God sees it. He says, I cherish you. The way he nurtures us, the way he washes by the word, the word of what? His affirmation over us. This is how he cherishes us. 
And this, this loving, protective care that he sees us with, this is why this changes even the way you see the, when he confronts sin in our life. Like when you cherish something, you protect it. In the Old Testament, you know what one of God's names are? I am jealous. That's his name. It's Elkanah. Now, you hear jealousy and you say, that's a terrible thing, right? I want what you have and I'll kill you if I need it. That's not what it means with God. God's jealousy is when sin threatens the covenant relationship he has with you, Elkanah rises up because he says, that's my wife. That's my bride. Like if someone were to come between me and my wife, a man tried to come in there, would not you expect a holy jealousy to rise up to say, that's my bride? When there are things and stuff that we allow to get in our relationship with the Lord that rob us of our attention, our affection, the jealousy of God rises up because he says, I cherish you. I want your affection wholly unto me. I'll do whatever it takes. I will confront you in love because I want you to be solely set on me. You are my wife. I am, in, I am your husband, he says. Revelation chapter 3, we spoke a few weeks ago about the church at Laodicea. That's the church that was lukewarm and complacent, right? But do you remember how he came to them? He says, those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke. He says, those whom I love, I confront. Be zealous and repent. Why? He says, I want to sit and have a meal with you. He says, I want to be close to you. I love you, so I'm confronting your staleness because I want to be closer to you. I want to be intimate with you. I am jealous for you because I cherish you. The Lord transforms his people by cherishing them. He removes the stain of shame from our heart by the revelation of his love. So important. God's affirmation it's, is what breaks the power of Satan's accusation. As Satan accuses, you have to hear his affirmation over your life. It's what sets you free from falling under those lies. I want to share one other scripture on this, and I promise we'll just, I'll share briefly on the ravaged heart. It's all leading into it. But 1 Corinthians 4, 5, go ahead. You can turn there if you have your Bibles. Keep your place in, in Songs of Solomon. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Again, this, I think this will so encourage you. First Corinthians chapter four, verse five. I just want to make this last point that you are, you are altogether lovely even while you're maturing and growing. And again, I'll, I'm going to stress this in a second. I'm not talking to the person. I'm talking to everyone, but this is not the one that just says, yeah, I'm altogether lovely and just keeps living a different way. In fact, if that's the case, it's probably because you don't know how he sees you. Because when, when, you, when you see yourself rightly in his eyes, that actually will change you and lead you to, to walk in holiness. So I want you to hear this though. If, I mean, just, just listen to this for a moment. You, if those of you watching at home, I really want you to grasp this. It says this, Paul is talking about future judgment and he's basically saying, guys, hold off on judgment because when Christ comes, there'll be perfect judgment. And this is what he says. He says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. What time is that? Wait until the Lord comes. Why? He will bring light to what is hidden in darkness. Okay, stop there. All right, that's what we commonly know. That means bad things, right? Things not repented for, unbelievers. Like, yeah, all this stuff is gonna be brought out. Yeah, it'll be dealt with. That, he is, he's sharing that right there. But then he says this, and, and he will expose or he will reveal the motives of the heart. And then look what it says. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You say, wait, 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 wait a minute. When God reveals the motives of our heart, when he reveals the intentions of our heart, you mean that's when we will receive our rebuke from God. 
that's the time, like, that's, that's the time that we're all dreading. That, that's, that will be the, the day that we're in the biggest trouble that we could ever imagine when he reveals and exposes the motives and the intentions of our heart. Now, maybe there is a group of people that can apply to that don't know the Lord, but what I'm saying is for the believer, it says that when he reveals the intentions of a heart, you will receive your praise from God. In other words, one of the things that it means that when God operates us on the basis of grace, he, he sees what we long for. He sees the intentions of your heart. He sees the motives of your heart. In other words, when you fail, he sees the person who comes away and says, God, I want to be obedient in that area, Lord. I want to walk in purity in that, God. I don't know why I keep doing that. I don't know why I keep dismissing your voice when you tell me to do that, but God, I really want to be faithful. You know what God's saying? God's saying, I see that. I see that motive, and I'm engaging and relating to you on the basis of grace. I'm honoring the intentions of your heart, even though your actions haven't caught up yet. That's what I see. Do you know that this is why you have to grasp this? Because there's two men I want to just you to hear this. This is why in Romans 4.20, the summary statement over Abraham's life, guess what it says? It says, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. And I told, and I, I'm sitting there, I'm saying, God, clearly you don't know Abraham's story. All Abraham did was waver, a lot. You know what he's saying? No, 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 no. You see all the outward stuff. I saw Abraham's heart. I saw a man that when he failed, he came before me broken. I saw a man that said, when no one could see, say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to do this. I really do love you. I want to grow in this, God. He says, I see you, son. I see you, my daughter. I see you, and I'm honoring that. I see those intentions. And I've almost quit at times because I'm like, oh, I failed him again. And my heart is being just lifted when I see God saying, I see you. And in the end, you know what his editing process is over Abraham? You say, Abraham did this. He almost sold his wife away. And God says, no, 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 he never wavered. <laughs> he never wavered. He said, no, through it all. David, Acts 13, 22 it says the summary statement over David's life is that he was a man after my own will. Uh, he's a man after my own heart, and he says, and he did all of my will. All of my will. There's no one, there's no one whose sin is more cataloged and defined and described in the scriptures than David. He's just put on blast for everyone to see. And God, but look at the Psalms. What does David do when he fails? We're not talking about someone that conceals and hides and, and gets his heart callous to God. This is a man who was hungry for God. When he failed, he came before God because he knew God's heart and said, Lord, forgive me. Take anything, but Lord, just you. I want you. I really want to obey. And God says, here's the summary statement of David. He did all of my will. Oh, he sees the intentions and the motives of your heart. Be encouraged as you're growing that you are altogether lovely to him. You are not a hopeless hypocrite. That's what the enemy says. You're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. He wants you to just, just keep you stuck in that place. You say, no, I really do love God. Yeah, I'm fickle. <laughs> I am. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not encouraging that, but man, my, my father is fathering me. He's with me through this. He's not just with me when I'm in my high moments. God says, bring that to me. I love to hear the struggles in your life. I love to talk to you about this. All right, let's just keep reading this. So Verse 8, I'm going to, uh, verse 8 is come away with me to this mountain. It, it's expressed a few times. It's a call of intimacy, the mountain of the Lord. It's a place of intimacy. But I just, uh, for sake of time, I'm going to jump right into verse 9. And this, again, everything just built up to this, I feel. He says in verse 9, he says, you have ravished my heart. This is, this is Jesus speaking over you. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. That emphasizes partnership. Love seeks partnership. Love 
God is not looking to just work, have us work for him. He wants us to work with him. We co-reign with Christ. My sister means that he became in our likeness. He, the incarnation of Christ allowed us to become one. He says we're partners with him now. My sister, my spouse. He says, you have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. Verse 10, how fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love. And the scent of your perfumes and all spices. He says, you have ravished my heart. What does that mean? Ravished means to be filled with emotions of joy or delight because of one who is unusually attractive. When he sees you, he's saying, my heart is filled with joy and delight because of your beauty, which I've imparted to you. It's just all in the realm of grace. I've given you beauty for ashes, and then when I see that beauty, when you just yield and walk with me, he says, that stirs my heart. In the Hebrew, the root of ravished, it, the imagery is when you peel bark off of a tree, and you get like what's laid underneath there, the white part, right? What it's saying is that when, when you love him, it opens his heart. He's laid bare. If, if I could say it this way, he's actually, he says, I'm, I'm vulnerable to you. You have access to my heart. Like, you can move me. You can stir me. My heart can be hurt by you. Like, you so deeply touch my heart. That's the way that he sees you. This is the idea of, or the reason, I should say, why, why we minister to the Lord, the scripture says. Our first ministry is to him, meaning he has a desire for you. Every husband desires the affections of his wife. God, Jesus, as our husband, if you will, the imagery he uses means that he has a desire for your affection. And when you give it to him, he says, it ravishes my heart. He desires your affection. He desires your trust. He desires your faith. He desires your obedience. And when you do that, he says, you have to understand how deeply this moves my heart. He says, it lays, it's just, I'm open to you. God doesn't give himself in pieces to you. He gives all of himself. He says, here I am. My whole heart is open and available to you. And you can ravish his heart. This, this joy he finds, it's not just when you're in a prayer closet. That's awesome. But it's also when you're driving in the car and you're going through something hard and you just stop and say, Lord, I love you. God says, do you understand what that does to me? As, as, uh, as me being uh, your husband and you being my wife, using that imagery, that stirs my heart. He says, you ravish my heart. Not, not, this isn't chapter 8 language. Not just when I come back for you and all sin is removed from your life. He says, right now. Right now as you're growing, you ravish my heart. Right now as you're still maturing, I find such joy and delight over who you are. There is a part that only you can touch in the heart of God, if you will, if you could picture that with the imagery that's being used. Meaning all the angelical creatures that worship God day and night, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Man, it lifts up a beautiful incense to the Lord, it says, but guess what? There's still a part of them that only you can move. When you worship him, when you ravish his heart, it means that, that obedience, that trust, you stir his heart. You provoke him. You move him. He says, man, it does something to me. And he says, what, what, look at the wording. He says, you ravished my heart with one look of your eye. One look. The eye is, is the attention. He says, when you give just one look of attention, that look of devotion, that's what it means. It's, it's an imagery used for devotion. I think about how a spouse between, between two partners, how some of their most intimate moments are usually when no words are even being expressed. It's just a look. And in that, they're expressing their love. That's the imagery he's using. He said, when you give me that look, now it could be an actual uh, devotion that's being lived out, but he's saying, I, I, I receive that devotion, that trust. It's like a look like, that a spouse would give to their husband. 
or the husband would give to the wife, he says, where you just know it's communicating how deeply I love you. He says, that's how I receive it when you do that. He says, with one link of your necklace, you ravish my heart. What does that mean? The neck in the scriptures is often equated to the man's will. That's why Jesus said you can be stiff-necked, meaning you're stubborn. You, you won't yield, right? Or you can have a submissive will. So he says, with one ne- link on your necklace, meaning your neck is beautiful. He's saying, you yield to me. You submit to me. And one link means every link, every decision, every choice, every response that you make, no matter how small. When you say yes to me, your yes does something in my heart. I pray that this would fuel us to live more obedient for him, knowing, knowing what it actually does in God's heart as his bride. And so finally in verse 10, he says, How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse, How much better than wine is your love? How beautiful is your love, he says to the church. Now, just think about this. Last week, we shared how the bride said about him, your love is better than wine. And now he's saying, your love is better than wine. And we said that wine becomes representative of a pleasure of this world. You have to grasp what he's saying. He says that to you, that your love is better to him than the splendor of anything that this world has. The most glorious things that he could get from this world, he wants you more than that. That's how he sees and receives your love. This is why ministry to the Lord has to be our primary thing because we want to give him what he desires. Ray, could you uh, put something on for a sec? I'm going to close here with you guys in the ravished heart of God. Why don't you turn? You know, I'm going to share this scripture here and this is where we'll close. Turn to chapter 7 in Song of Songs. Chapter 7, verse 10. I really pray just misconceptions that we've had and lies of the enemy just break this morning. I pray you'd meditate on these truths that you've maybe had a hard time, even as you hear it, you just say, I don't know if he still sees me this way. Let him get into your heart. He sees things in you that you can't even see. But I want, I want to share this verse This is a verse that's expressed three different times in this scripture. Sometimes it's said a little bit different, but it's so amazing. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. It's a statement of beloved identity. This has to be more than something we say casually. See, remember, it's a growth process. By chapter 7, she's starting to get it. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me me. I'm not just his servant. We, we are that. We are his sheep. But there's going to be a shift. Where we're going to say, man, I am his beloved. I'm the one that he dearly, dearly loves. Condemnation, rejection, despair, it breaks when you encounter this truth. It breaks. Many times I can quote this, it's got to get into us though. I think so often we look, we look to, to the mouth of another human to find our value, our identity, our definition of success when God is saying, I want you to find it from my voice. I want you to say, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And the last thing on that that I'll close here is, do you know that there were two times, if you can picture it this way, two times that the Father in heaven peered over the balcony, just the imagery I'm using, and he speaks over the Son. And on both occasions, He confirms over Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son. Now, here's what's fascinating. Is in the first time, right after he says that, Jesus was led into the wilderness. 
fully God but fully man, fasting for 40 days, weakened in the flesh, hungry it says, felt what that's like in the flesh. Satan comes in all of his power. And you know what? You know what was a, a source of tremendous strength for Jesus in that temptation? He says, I am my beloved. I, I'm the beloved of my father. I am a son of God. This strengthened him in one of his hardest uh, temptations. Do you know the other time it said? On the Mount of Transfiguration. The father speaks over the son, this is my beloved son. In that context, Jesus, one of the things that he spoke with his disciples about how he was going to die and suffer. He was preparing for the cross, his greatest hour of trouble and temptation. And do you know what, what gave him a source of strength and energized him? Was that the father spoke over him again and says, that's my son whom I love. And I think that this is why we have to be in beloved identity because as we get drawn nearer to the coming of the Lord, Jesus says there will be shakings, there will be things happening, there will be persecution, there will be all this stuff, trials and temptations, and the church that's not just going to survive but thrive, transcend and be a voice and be a people that are going to influence are those that are secure in the fact that they are his beloved and that no matter what happens, they are firm in his love. So for everyone watching, I just want to leave it there and pray for you guys that you would... Um, you would see that you're altogether lovely to him, that you ravish his heart, that you are his beloved, and that as, even as you're growing, he sees the intentions of your heart. Again, it's not someone whose heart's cold and callous and says, oh, he sees, he sees, he knows. No, no, this is the person that their heart breaks and they truly want the Lord. God says, I see that, I honor that, I delight in you. I see, I see where I'm leading you. You can't see it, but I see it in you. And so I just, wherever you are, just why don't you close your eyes and just bow your head for a moment or do whatever you feel you need to do. Jesus. We worship you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for this book. It's a song that is separated from every other song. It's the song of songs. It reveals your deepest desire. And I thank you, Lord, that you teach us in this. That you do not just delight over us in chapter 8, but in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, you see us all together lovely because you see us in you. And I pray, God, for those that are just struggling with feeling like you are put off by them, you are hesitant to relate to them, you are disappointed in what you see, you are disgusted by what you see. I just pray, God, that those lives would be broken. And I pray that we would be transformed by the way that you see us. Lord, teach us to be firmly rooted in the fact that we are your beloved. Lord, we need to understand this in the hour and the days ahead. We have to know this, Lord. I pray, God, that our devotion life to you, our obedience to you, our trust, our faith would change knowing what it does to you. 
that with one link of our submission, every small step where we yield our will, God, you said it, it moves you. And I pray, God, that, that that would fuel us to give you even more because we, we want to give everything we have because of, of you and how you've given everything for us. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would seal in our hearts that we ravish the heart of our Father, of our bridegroom. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I hope that you are uh, enjoying this teaching series. Next week we'll be uh, continuing in this series. And again, we'll be sharing some things throughout the week of uh, things that we'll be doing in terms of a church and next steps and going to be changing some things up. So.